1: a podcast focused on continuing education, created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
0: Hey there, PTCE Pharmacy Connect. We're back for another episode. This is an interesting conversation, something that I knew very little about before getting the preface document that we meticulously go through to help build these podcasts to best position you, the pharmacist out there. You guys are busy, so why not do some continuing education through audio and being able to take a walk, uh, take a drive somewhere, and really uh, refresh something that you may not have realized there are some very significant updates on, and today... Multiple myeloma is a complex disease state affecting plasma cells. And there are many treatments available as well as combinations of drug treatments. Just like we said in many other podcasts that we've done, combinations and timing of these therapies are so important. Pharmacists are so important. They're, the, they're these players. They're grasping and grabbing the treatment set in place by our physicians and specialists. This is multiple disciplinary uh, health care delivery through teams, and I always say hashtag TogetherRx. We have a star today, and that is our pharmacist. These are, I'm your biggest fan, and you, you know that. And, and when you do this day in and day out, you get into the trenches, and you may forget how important it is to support each other. So pharmacists listening out there, um, today I'm going to introduce Dr. Catherine Maples. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist in multiple myeloma. Um, at the Winship Cancer Institute for Emory Health uh, Care in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, welcome, Catherine. How are you?
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here and um, talk a little bit about myeloma.
0: So we're going to get into like reviewing the systematic treatment. Um, there's there's lot, lots of options out there depending on the case you're overseeing uh, patient care and patient treatment ongoing, you might actually suggest to the physician and the in the treatment team that there's some changes made along the way for these patients with multiple myeloma by by so many different properties and efficacy of the specific patient, maybe sometimes adverse effects that could come up and those routes of administration that are very specific to the patient, the treatment, and what the pharmacist understands and experiences so, What better person to have someone here that really has a lot of experience specifically in this condition? Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and then let's get into today's discussion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you said, I'm the clinical pharmacy specialist practicing strictly in multiple myeloma. So very sub-specialized here at the Emory um, at the Emory Group at Winship Cancer Institute. And you know, I really love multiple myeloma. It's a very exciting time in myeloma. We historically always think about this hematologic malignancy as being an incurable disease, which can be a little bit daunting and overwhelming. But um, we've seen in the last decade, uh, 10 drugs come to market and we have more coming down the pipeline. So it's really an exciting time as we move towards a cure in this disease. And I really love working with this patient population. So I'm excited today to talk about a little bit about the disease. We will review some of the, the disease biology. And then as you mentioned, jump really into the systemic therapy for myeloma and what makes each of these drugs a little bit unique how they work and how we may choose one over another
0: excellent thank you Catherine, for that and really just helping us to set the stage listeners if you if you are a pharmacy student out there and you're listening to these programs understand that specialty pharmacists are rising having specific understanding of specific conditions disease states and understanding the um, the long-term effects of, of treatment, as well as ancillary therapies. I'm excited. And in, in, the, in the realm of, of disease state treatment, uh, Catherine, I want you to kind of jump into this multiple myeloma. My um, malignancy, it's affecting primarily older adults with a medium age of diagnosis right around 69 years of age. Can you kind of unpack and and kind of share with our listeners right out of the gate, what are some of the characteristics of multiple myeloma?
1: Yeah, so multiple myeloma, as you mentioned, does primarily affect our older population. So, myeloma is the second most common hematologic malignancy in the United States. It um, is still a rare cancer in terms of the broad spectrum of all cancer diagnoses. But when just thinking about our hematologic malignancies, such as leukemia, lymphoma, um, myeloma is going to be the second most common. And with it primarily affecting our more elderly patient population, we do want to think about what these patients may also have going on. So there's a good chance that they also have other diagnoses such as hypertension or diabetes. Um, They may have... Um, uh, they may have had another cancer before being diagnosed with myeloma. So we want to think about their specific history and how that may impact drug-drug interactions, adverse effect profile of the drugs, um, et cetera. But myeloma is a part of what we call the plasma cell disorder spectrum. So there are two precursor states to multiple myeloma, the first being called MGUS, and the second being smoldering multiple myeloma. And what makes um, active myeloma distinct from those two precursor states where we're typically just going to be monitoring those patients, they're not going to receive any active therapy. Um, What makes myeloma different is when patients develop a myeloma-defining event. And what we normally think of when we think of a myeloma-defining event is our CRAB criteria, so CRAB And that's going to be hypercalcemia, so having an elevated calcium level, uh, renal dysfunction, anemia, and bone disease. So those are some of the characteristics that are going to define multiple myeloma. So if patients have a high percentage of plasma cells in their bone marrow, which we find by doing a bone marrow biopsy, and the presence of the CRAB criteria, that would be a time to start treatment. In 2014, the International Myeloma Working Group did add three additional criteria to the CRAB. Um, You may hear it nicknamed the SLIM criteria, so you'll hear SLIM CRAB, and that is um, when patients have a high light chain disease, so their serum-free light chain ratio level is 100 or higher, if they have 60% or more plasma cells in their bone marrow, or if they have one or more focal lesions by MRI, those patients were previously falling in that smoldering multiple myeloma bucket would now be uh, moved into the active myeloma bucket and start therapy. Um, So really the the disease characteristics that come into play uh, when we think about starting therapy is going to be that end organ dysfunction. So do they have renal dysfunction? Do they have anemia? Um, And how is that going to impact their treatment? But we now have the additional slim crab uh, when thinking about how to start therapy.
0: So I heard you say the word smoldering, which got my attention and wondering if that is a dormant type of myeloma, or what's the difference between smoldering myeloma and and the active disease?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question and something that we're learning more and more about. Um, So the two precursor states, uh, the first being MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, that is going to be a step below smoldering. The risk for progressing to multiple myeloma if you have MGUS is 1% per year. So, pretty low risk. You're just going to be typically monitored. Now smoldering myeloma uh, is where we see an M protein of three or higher and the plasma cells in the bone marrow between 10 to 60% um, and the absence of any of those slim crab criteria. So they have some protein being detected, but they don't have any of that end organ dysfunction. So we don't need to start therapy yet. Um, But this is an evolving world as well. Uh, We also can further subcategorized smoldering myeloma patients into low intermediate and high risk. And for some of those high risk smoldering patients, where we're worried about them converting to active myeloma, there are some clinical trials out there where you can actually start treatment um, when they still have smoldering as part of a clinical trial. So I think more to come in that world as well, but really the biggest difference there being that they don't have any of that CRAB criteria.
0: Okay, Catherine, in the beginning, in the opening, we were talking about the types and multiple medications available. We were talking about administration, specific um, administration to the treatment. Let's talk about timing. So do all patients start therapy at, at the time of diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question as well. So timing of treatment um, is going to be a little different. in if we're talking about a newly diagnosed versus a relapsed patient, so all newly diagnosed patients with active myeloma, so we're not talking smoldering, we're talking full active multiple myeloma. Um, all patients will start therapy at that time of diagnosis. Um, now, where we may see timing of therapy differ would be in the relapse setting where we have two different kinds of relapse. So you can have what's called a biochemical progression, where we start to see the numbers rise. Um, something that's really unique about multiple myeloma is that we have biomarkers to assess their overall disease status. So uh, we we have what's called an M protein or paraprotein, which the abnormal malignant plasma cells are secreting into the blood and into the urine. Uh, and we also have gamma globulins and light chain levels that the malignant plasma cells secrete. So we can can monitor those levels in the blood and the urine to assess whether patients are responding to their therapy um, or if they're not. And this makes myeloma a little bit unique because other cancers may require frequent imaging with CT scans or MRIs to assess disease response. And we really only have to draw some blood to be able to assess that. So In terms of timing in the relapse setting, if a patient is experiencing what we would call a slow biochemical progression, where we're starting to see a rise in some of those biomarker numbers, but it's happening very slowly, we may not need to immediately change therapy. We can sometimes wait a few extra months before making that change and starting a different treatment. Um, This would be a very different situation from a clinical relapse where patients have um, new or worsening. CRAB criteria. So they come to a clinic and they have new hypercalcemia or they come to clinic and they're in renal failure and an immediate change would be needed. You would want to start a new therapy right away. So the timing um, at diagnosis, everybody mo- is most likely starting therapy, but the timing of treatment moving on after that would be a little bit uh, patient specific.
0: All right. Now shifting gears. So we We're talking about timing, and and so let's talk about the available drug therapies for patients uh, with a new diagnosis of multiple myeloma.
1: Yeah, so the world is evolving not just for relapsed myeloma. We have seen some changes in the frontline setting in recent years as well. Historically, a triplet therapy is the standard of care for a newly diagnosed myeloma patient, And when I say triplet therapy, that's going to be um, a drug from the proteasome inhibitor category um, plus an immunomodulatory agent, which we typically use Revlimid or lenalidomide um, plus a steroid of dexamethasone. In the proteasome inhibitor category, we have three different PIs that are recommended in the NCCN guidelines for frontline therapy. So we can use bortezomib, um, and when we combine that with lenalidomide and DEX, you would commonly hear the acronym of VRD. We could also use carfilzomib uh, with KRD, or lastly, we could use exazomib um, when IRD. So when we think about our three different proteasome inhibitors and why we might pick one over another, um, bortezomib is going to be a sub-Q administered medication. The most common side effect with bortezomib is peripheral neuropathy. Carfilzomib is an IV infused medication. So it takes about 30 minutes for the intravenous infusion to complete. Um, And some of the side effects that we worry about most with carfilzomib are cardiac related. I mean, it can cause some hypertension as well as heart failure. So some patients may need to get a, a baseline echocardiogram before starting carfilzomib. And then exazomib is an oral option. So we have sub-Q, bortezomib, IV, Carfilzomib, and oral Ixazomib. So you have three different routes of administration that may uh, be more applicable for your specific patient. If you have a patient that travels very often for work and and really cannot come into an infusion center, then you do have that all oral option with exazomine. Now we do have one study that helped answer some of our questions that compared these regimens head to head. And that was the endurance trial, which compared VRD versus KRD. um, And this was done in the transplant ineligible patient population. So I do want to point that out. Um, and what this study, the endurance trial showed us was that KRD did not improve progression free survival compared to VRD and it did have more toxicity. Um, so in that patient population, we, we really rely on our, our traditional background of VRD most commonly. Um, but carfilzomib may have a role for, for specific patient populations. We know high risk patients that are transplant eligible, do well with a KRD-based treatment uh, from the Forte trial. We also uh, had a patient recently who was a professional guitarist and getting peripheral neuropathy would have been um, a a very troublesome adverse side effect for his career. So wanting to avoid a bortezomib-based regimen for someone like that then carfilzomib would be an appropriate alternative. So uh, traditionally our our triplet therapies are gonna be preferred with a PI, an IMID, and a DEX. um, And that PI selection can be made for a variety of different reasons with VRD being the most common. Um, We now have also seen the inclusion of some quadruplet-based therapies by adding monoclonal antibodies to our triplet regimens, most notably the CD38 monoclonal antibody of daratumumab. Um, And and this was done in two studies, the Griffin trial, as well as the Cassiopeia trial, of adding daratumumab um, and Griffin. It was added to VRD. And in Cassiopeia, it was added to VTD, um, swapping out thalidomide for the lenalidomide. Um, And both of these studies showed us that by adding daratumumab in the frontline setting, we got deeper responses. So higher rates of stringent complete response, higher rates of minimal residual disease negativity. And in myeloma, um, while it is an incurable disease, as I mentioned, the, the first remission period is typically going to be the deepest as well as the longest. So we're really looking to see how we can improve those depth of responses for our frontline patients. And it appears by adding daratumumab to these regimens that we can deepen responses. So I think we will see um, more data come out as those trials continue, Um, but we can potentially add daratumumab in that setting. And and then lastly, in the... um, In the ineligible patient population as well, we've seen Dara be included from the Maya study, which looked at daratumumab with lenalidomide and DEX versus lenalidomide and DEX alone. Our transplant ineligible patients tend to be more elderly in their 80s, um, a little bit more frail. Um, They may not be able to traditionally tolerate a triplet regimen. Um, So by adding daratumumab to lenalidomide and DEX and seeing the significant response rates and tolerability with that regimen, that's another consideration um, that you can consider for, for those patients. The last thing to really consider for a newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patient is our is the option of a transplant. So we want to consider transplant eligibility when they are initially diagnosed. Um, autologous stem cell transplant is still heavily being used in um, immediately following that induction therapy. And recently at ASCO, results from the phase three determination trial were, were presented where um, patients were randomized to receive VRD plus transplant uh, versus VRD without transplant, and this study showed that progression-free survival was higher in the transplant arm. There was notably no difference in overall survival, um, but for the for a large um, portion of our myeloma patients, we are still transplanting them in that in that first line setting to achieve deeper response rates. Um, So when we think about new regimens in the frontline setting, we always wanna make sure that What we're adding doesn't impact the ability for stem cell collection. So in the Griffin and Cassiopeia trial, by adding daratumumab, we did not see any negative impact on their stem cell mobilization and collection, which is very important for these patients. So I think for now, um, autologous stem cell transplant is going to remain a staple for these patients.
0: All right. So things sometimes just don't go as planned. Um, A disease could become non-responsive. There's situations that I'm sure that that comes up. So what about patients with relapsed or refractory disease?
1: Yes. So unfortunately, there is no standard for the optimal therapy sequence once we reach relapse and refractory myeloma. Um, you know, the pharmacist type A and me would love a very pretty algorithm and chart in the NCCM guidelines that tells me you go from A to B to C, and this is the the steps you follow. But unfortunately, we don't have that in multiple myeloma. What we do have is a long list of possible options that you could consider for your patient. Um, So we really want to think about deciding these therapies on a patient by patient basis. Um, So some of the factors that would go into our decision-making for a relapsed and refractory myeloma patient is first thinking, are they early or late? So is this a patient who's had one to three prior lines of therapy, in which case they would be considered an early relapse patient, or have they had three or more prior lines? And this is going to be a late relapse patient we always want to put the patient at the center of the conversation. So thinking about their age, their performance status, their lifestyle is a really big one. Um, Are they still working? Uh, Do they need to have a, have a treatment that allows them to continue working or are they retired? Do they have caregiver support? Um, Some of our therapies for our late relapse, such as Belantimab-Mafidotin has extensive REMS requirements where they have to see an eye doctor every three weeks, which may put a transportation burden on them. So we always want to keep the patient at the center. Uh, we want to think about their disease specifics. Uh, notably, I think about do they have translocation 11-14 And could we consider venetoclax for those patients? Um, And we want to think about what they've had before and what they've tolerated and how can we introduce drugs with novel mechanisms of action. So for a patient who is progressing on a lenalidomide-based maintenance regimen, um, what can we introduce that would overcome that lenalidomide resistance? We could do a pomalidomide-based regimen or a carfilzomib-based regimen to introduce some novel for that patient. So um, so those are some of the things that we think about when selecting a regimen. But for the first relapse, uh, largely we will be considering an anti-CD38 backbone combination regimen. So we have two anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies on the market now. We have daratumumab and we have isoteximab. These can both be combined with the second generation imid of pomalidomide and dexamethasone or with the second generation proteasome inhibitor of carfilzomib and dexamethasone. Um, So thinking about just comparing those kind of four different options there, um, you would think about your patient and carfilzomib, as I said, has some cardiac toxicity. So do they have any underlying cardiac toxicity? You may want to go the pomalidomide based regimen is coming into therapy into an infusion center, uh, twice a week to receive carfilzomib going to be challenging. And then you could consider a pomalidomide based regimen. Conversely, uh, pomalidomide, if they have an extensive VTE history and you don't want to introduce, um, another imid, then you could go with carfilzomib. So These are some things that when you look at that list in the NCCM guidelines of all the different possible options, um, you wanna start looking at the efficacy and the adverse effect profile of those different regimens, which may help guide you into selecting one over another. And then once we get on beyond that first relapse, um, then it's going to be thinking about drugs with our novel mechanisms of action such, such as selinexor, which is an XPO1 inhibitor, a first-in-class therapy, uh, Belantamab mathedotin which is a BCMA antibody drug co- conjugate. Um, and then even later on, thinking about our CAR T-cell therapies, which we now have two different options there. So those are some of the ways that I would approach a relapse and refractory patient of thinking about their disease, specifically unique to them, their patient uh, specifics, and what they've had before.
0: Okay, Catherine, I always want to do some projecting um, based on our, our guest's knowledge, and you have such a deep uh, knowledge in multiple myeloma that we want to take advantage of this time with you. So would you tell us what you see coming in the future for these agents and in, in the treatment of multiple myoma?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we we just uh, finished up ASCO uh, about a week or so ago and lots of exciting updates from that meeting. Um, I think what we can think about in terms of coming down the pipeline and the horizon for myeloma uh, is we're seeing a lot of bispecific. So a bispecific antibody has kind of two arms to it. So it has one arm that's gonna reach out and grab and attach to something on the myeloma cell. And it has another arm that's gonna attach to your T cell, uh, bring those together, which will help the body's own immune system recognize and attack those myeloma cells. Um, so we had several updates, uh, with, with three that I can point out. Um, the Majestic One trial highlighting to which is a BCMA targeted by specific antibody. We saw overall response rates of 63% in a heavily pre treated patient population. Um, the magnetism 3 study was L which is another BCMA bispecific. Uh, we saw overall response rates over 60% with that as well. And then uh, to switch it up, we have the GPRC5D bispecific, so targeting a slightly different target on the myeloma cell um, with Talquetamab in the monumental study. Uh, which also showed, showed great overall response rates. So I think coming down the pipeline, we're gonna see a lot of bispecifics, we're gonna see more CAR T cells. And then um, when thinking about the drugs that we already have available to us, uh, we're learning a little bit more about maintenance therapy um, and what is best for each patient population. So the Atlas trial uh, looked at a response adapted approach of using um, a triplet regimen of KRD versus uh, lenalidomide alone maintenance therapy. So I think we're gonna see different strategies specifically in the high risk patient population of how to better manage these patients with the drugs that we have. So a lot of exciting things coming, different maintenance strategies, different drugs with different mechanisms of action. Um, It'll be be a a lot to come in the next um, months to years in the myeloma landscape.
0: Dr. Maples, this has been an absolute um, treat to listen to you, to dig deeper into this. It's something that um, really has interest and in, in there there are pharmacists out there that specialize in specific uh, disease states and conditions and treatments. So we so much appreciate your time in, in sharing your, your insights on multiple myeloma and treatments for it. So Can't let you go yet. So one more question. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in today?
1: Yeah, so I I really think that pharmacists can play a huge role in the myeloma world and in 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 the oncology world in general. But I'm of course a little bit biased. But um, you know we have so many different treatment options and so many different combinations of these different treatment options that pharmacists can really play a role in helping identify any drug interactions, any patient specific characteristics that might lead to one being more appropriate than another. So I think really working with your physicians and your patients to help guide therapy is a huge role um, that pharmacists can take. And the education with these regimens, I mean, there are three, four drug regimens. All the drugs are given on different days. Um, So I think it's a great opportunity for pharmacists to engage with patients and uh, teach them about their therapy and work with them uh, to to have the, the most success that they can have.
0: This has been terrific. Thank you so much. A shout out to our pharmacists out there, especially in stressful times. Uh, although we are coming out of um, out of a pandemic, there's still lots to do. We absolutely love interviewing and listening and learning from pharmacists on the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Dr. Maples. Thank you so much for this, and also the PTCE. Pharmacy Connect team. Thank you for all of your preparation and helping us. If you need anything, uh, pharmacists, we know that you're under pressure. Even pharmacy technicians that are out there, please reach out to to us at Pharmacy Podcast or on Twitter and and, uh, for Pharmacy Times uh, CE as well at Pharmacy Times CE. We're so excited that you are listening and everything that you do, and we can't wait to share our next PTCE Pharmacy Connect
1: Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.